worked for, for another church. I, I worked as the as, assistant minister, and my job was to, to do a fair bit of work with, with students. And I would meet up regularly with students at Warwick University, uh, reading the Bible with guys often, young guys, uh, one-to-one. Uh, and there was one guy in particular, he will remain nameless, um, that I used to meet for a while. He came along to the church, and for a while we used to meet up uh, on a Friday morning to read the Bible over coffee. Um, and I remember one particular conversation I had, I don't think I'll ever forget it. Uh, as we chatted a little bit, it became uh, obvious that he had started dating a girl who uh, went along to the Christian Union. Uh, and I didn't know they were together, but it turned out they'd been together for a while. Um, and he made some comments in that conversation that prompted, prompted the question, in fact invited the question, are you sleeping together? Uh, you may think that's very bold, but that's the question I asked him. And he happily confirmed that. He happily said that, yeah, that's what they were doing. Uh, there wasn't any hint of shame or embarrassment or any hint, in fact, that he was doing anything wrong. Uh, and this was his logic. This was his logic. Uh, we've been together for a while and we really fancy each other. And so we were, we were lusting. And we know that's wrong. Uh, and then we were just struck that God would forgive us for our lust. And if God forgives you for your thoughts and your words and your deeds, well, we might, he might as well forgive us for something we enjoy rather than something we feel f- frustrating. And so why not crack on and, and sleep together? At least then we'll be having a good time. Now, I don't know how you would have responded to that sort of conversation. I don't know what you would say. Uh, but here's what, here's what John would say our writer. Just glance down at John chapter 1, verse 6. Here's what he would say. If you claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and we do not live by the truth. John is quite simply saying that if you claim to be a Christian, claim to be a follower of Jesus, uh, and you willfully deliberately, unrepentantly carry on living in the darkness. We'll see what that means in a few minutes. Living in the darkness, living in a way that doesn't please God, and you know it doesn't please God, but you continue anyway, then John would say you are either incredibly confused or you're not a Christian at all. Uh, we have just started to, to look at this letter uh, over the last uh, week or so, um, and we've seen that John is writing this letter to, to a church that he probably knows really well, uh, a church probably in, in, in around the, the Ephesus area. Um, but it turns out, there's a few hints when you read between the lines in the letter, that uh, false teachers have come been raised up in the church uh, and have led a whole bunch of people a way to start something new. Uh, clearly, they are teaching different things about who Jesus is, and clearly they're teaching different things, radically different things, about how you should behave and can behave uh, as a Christian. Uh, just glance at chapter 2, verse 19. The words will appear on the screen behind me. Uh, they went out, that is this other group, 
uh, by, led by these other teachers. They went out from us, they, but uh, they did not really belong to us. For if they did belong to us, they would have remained with us. But their going out showed that none of them belonged to us. Okay, well, it's not Shakespeare, but you get the idea, okay? Uh, there was a group. They've left. And what that has done is that has left the group that remained. Now, again, we used the kind of thought experiment last week. Imagine this half of the church just one week up and leaves. How this half of the church then would feel about that. You would feel if some of your friends have left and are saying, yeah, we did like Strandtown, but it was just a bit fundamentalist. It was just a bit medieval in its thinking. You know, we, we've discovered, you know, uh, a deeper spirituality. Uh, we've discovered greater insight. Uh, we've discovered greater liberty, greater joy. Come, join us. Come on, be part of our gang. If you were one of the, the folks who were in the remaining group, how would you feel? You'd feel deeply unsettled by that. Maybe, maybe we do need to move on. Maybe these guys are right. Maybe we have misread the Bible. Maybe we've misunderstood all along. Maybe we are living too constrained and repressed kind of lives. Well, it's to this group then who remains that John writes. And here's what he says, verse 24. As for you, this is the remaining group. As for you, oh, oh, I'll use this actually. Uh, As for you, (laughs) what you've heard from the beginning, uh, see that what you've heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, uh, you will also remain in the Son uh, and in the Father. Keep believing what you've always believed. Keep behaving in the way that you were always taught. You are the real deal. Keep going. Do not be unsettled. And fundamentally, this book is a word of wonderful reassurance to those uh, who are Christians. Um, John, last week, if you were here, um, almost lays out his um, credentials. Why should you listen to him and not to these other teachers who are leading this other group away? Well, fundamentally, John is saying, well, you should listen to me. Uh, and the other apostles, because we were there and we sought, we heard the life of uh, the teaching of Jesus. We saw his life. Uh, we witnessed his death and, and, and uh, witnessed his resurrection. We know what we're talking about. We should, you should listen uh, to us. And now, as John begins to get into the meat of the letter. Uh, He begins uh, by saying, in effect, here then are some of the marks, the hallmarks of a Christian. Okay? Here's some of the marks that prove the, the, the genuine article. And if you see these things in you then you should be wonderfully uh, uh, reassured, wonderfully encouraged. Um, John is saying, in effect, if you comprehend something of the holiness of God, if you are conscious of your sin, if you confess it and cling to the Lord Jesus, you're the real McCoy. You're the real McCoy. Be be uh, reassured. Uh, Just keep believing what you've believed. Keep behaving the way you've behaved, uh, and you're on the right track. I want to just take us through those those three, I'm going to collapse two together, three hallmarks uh, of what it means to be an authentic Christian. What does it look like to be an authentic Christian according uh, to John then? First uh, big idea is there in verse 5. 
uh, it's this idea that we comprehend something of, not fully, but comprehend something of the holiness uh, of God. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. The way this little book works, uh, there's a clear introduction in verses chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. There's then a clear conclusion in chapter 5, 18 to, to the end. And in between, it's a, little hard, <laughs> it's a little hard to work it out, but in between there's at very least two clear big sections. Uh, and both the sections begin with the same phrase, this is the message. Uh, so chapter 1, verse 5, and chapter 3, verse 11 mark the beginning of these two big sections. And in each section, then, there's a, this wonderful announcement about what God is like. God is light. And then in the second section, God is love. And in the rest of the section, um, he explains what it looks like to live in light of those two truths about God. And so we come now to the first section uh, with this first announcement, God is light. And in the Bible, light's used in, in a bunch of different ways. Two main ways that this metaphor or picture of light is used. One, it's used in an intellectual sense. Um, and we even use it today in English in that way. We would say, I, I was in the dark about that, really meaning I, I didn't know about that. And that's sometimes the way it's used in, in the Bible and in the New Testament. Uh, but the, way, the second way that it's used is it's used in the moral sense. Like the Star Wars sense on the dark side. Darkness is often associated with evil and malice and cruelty. Uh, here, John, in the context, seems to be using that second sense here. God is light. He seems to be saying, although it is absolutely true, it is absolutely true that God is the source of all truth. He is the source of all revelation. He's the, one, and the only one who can reveal the truth about where we come from, where we're going, and what life is supposed to be all about. Only God has revealed that and uh, hasn't left us stumbling around in the darkness guessing. He's shown us the truth. God is light in that sense, of course. But what he's focusing on here is God's moral character. God is light. Look at the way he qualifies it. In him there is no darkness at all. In fact, in the original language, I quite like this. Uh, in the original language, it says this. Darkness in him there is not. None at all. I love that. Darkness in him there is not. None at all. Uh, it's really expressing the idea that, that God is utterly pure. God is perfect in his character and absolutely opposed to falsehood and impurity and corruption and evil in every way. He is light and in him there is no darkness, none at all. To get something of the force of the image, just glance up. I've got loads of lights here that I can look at, but glance up. You can maybe look at the front or look behind you, maybe some of you. Look at the light above. Look in, stare at it just for a moment, just for a moment. Not too long, you hurt your eyes, but uh, stare for a moment. 
in the light there is no darkness at all. Darkness is dispelled by light. Now, some of you are probably physicists and will come back and disagree with that. But on the whole, look, that's true. Just trust me, that's true. Darkness dispel, or is dispelled by light. They don't mix. They don't mix at all. And in the same way, what John is saying is if you want to get an understanding of Christian ethics and how you should behave, here is where you've got to start. Here's where you've got to start. You've got to understand who God is. You've got to understand who he is. He is light. In him there's no darkness at all. If you're saying that you can be a Christian and happily live in the darkness, then you have misunderstood God. You've misunderstood God. You cannot have fellowship with the God who is utterly pure and holy and opposed to all falsehood and impurity and corruption and evil and think that you can carry on living in those ways and he'll be totally cool with that. That is just profound misunderstanding. Here's how you begin your Christian ethics. It begins with understanding who God is. Light and darkness just don't mix. If we have fellowship with God, the God of light, then it follows we'll not want nothing to do with impurity, evil, malice, or falsehood, which God hates. Which God hates. Where do we begin then to understand how we should behave? What is the first hallmark of a true Christian? It's that they have a comprehension, beginning of a comprehension of the holiness of God. But John continues, here's the second hallmark then of an authentic Christian. It's someone who is conscious of the seriousness of sin, conscious of the seriousness uh, of sin. Now, we live in a relative age, uh, an age where it says you shouldn't be too prudish. Uh, You definitely shouldn't be judgmental towards anyone else and how they live. And it really fundamentally doesn't matter how you behave as long as you don't hurt anybody else. Okay, that's that's sort of the air that we breathe in our culture. Um, That... It turns out that morally permissive view was very popular in the first century, just as it is uh, in the the 21st century. Um, There were lots of people in John's day who were saying that actually it didn't matter what you did with your body. It didn't matter how you behaved. Um, They were happy to blame shift and in some cases were happy just to dismiss the notion of sin altogether. And it seems that these, this group of people, chapter 2, verse 26, who were leading them, potentially leading them astray, were teaching these sort of permissive views with regards to ethics and behavior. It doesn't really matter what you do or how you behave. As long as you don't hurt anyone, you might as well enjoy yourself and have a good time. Well, what John does in this little section is he challenges three claims, the three claims that the false teachers were suggesting. Uh, You can see it there in verse 6 and verse 8 and verse 10. Each one is introduced with the phrase, if we claim, if we claim, uh, if we claim. Uh, John will state the objection and then, uh, or will state the claim and then will uh, challenge it and object to it. 
three claims. Here's the first one, John says. Don't downplay your sin. Don't downplay your sin. Verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. That's really, in many ways, what my young friend was saying at the beginning, isn't it? It doesn't really matter. God will forgive you. Crack on and enjoy yourself and ask for forgiveness later. Uh, God forgives you. That's kind of his job. You might as well have a good time. Um, John wants to say that is seriously uh, misguided. Um, John completely, uh, he completely disagrees. Um, and he says, if you try to live that way, you will actually find that you're living a life that is incompatible with knowing God. Uh, and actually, you are self-deceived. You're self-deceived. Um, that you're actually living a lie. Let's take a, let's take a ridiculous example. Uh, imagine someone in this group of people says, I am a keen ballroom dancer, okay? It's bound to be one here, bound to be one. Keen ballroom dancer. And I then just push that claim just a little bit further and say, do you ballroom dance often? No, 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 I don't, I don't actually do any dancing. Uh, okay, uh, do you have any clothes with sequins on them? Uh, no, no, don't do any. Don't have any clothes with any sequins on them. Do you watch ballroom dancing often? No, never watch ballroom dancing. Uh, and I sort of have two left feet and don't really, don't really do that kind of moving um, very often. Anyway, you get the idea. That's a false claim, isn't it? That's a fraudulent claim. You're saying one thing, but the reality underneath is something radically different. There are lots of people out there who claim allegiance to the Lord Jesus. Lots of people who say, yeah, I I am a follower of Jesus. But actually, when you examine their lives, you can see from their conduct that they completely ignore him. You can see from their conduct that they they reject his commands and his demands in their lives. They continue to live whatever way they want. John would say, then that is a fraudulent claim, no matter what they say. They're living a lie. They're living a lie. And that is actually a very dangerous, a very dangerous attitude. Now, hold on a moment. I imagine there's a few people, there's always a few people with very sensitive consciences when we hear something like that. A few people here who are thinking, well, hold on a minute. Is John saying that if I'm a Christian, I will be a sinless person? Because that's, that's not me. I failed maybe even yesterday or this morning even. Uh, I said something, thought something, did something that was, that was wrong. Am I, am I deceiving myself? Am I, am I not a Christian? Again, John wants, if we look carefully in verses 6 and 7, we see that John is referring to two different groups of people. I've tried to highlight it on the the words on the screen there. There are two groups of people. First group, those who walk in darkness. Those who walk in darkness. Who are they? They are those people who consistently, persistently, unrepentantly continue to live in a way that rejects God's rules 
continue to live in a way that ignores God's demands uh, on their lives. And if that's, if that's you, then you need to hear the warning of this passage. You need to hear the warning of this passage. But there's a second group, of course, verse 7. If you walk in the light <laughs> as he is in the light. I'll just pause just for a moment. There's a second group of people. There's a second group of people. Uh, The second group are those who walk in the light. Those who love the Lord. Those who long to follow him, but occasionally mess up. For them, when they turn and quickly confess their sins and repent, and have their sins purified and forgiven, they they should be reassured reassured. You're the real McCoy. You're the real McCoy. Uh, Someone who's conscious of their own sin and quickly confesses it, that is actually a hallmark of a real Christian. A hallmark of a real Christian. Don't downplay your sin. Confess it. Don't downplay your sin. Confess it. But before, I don't want to blunt the, the, the kind of sharp challenge of this passage, however, too much. Because I think there's a danger for each and every one of us to downplay our sin. I, I really do. Uh, I think we're often tempted uh, to indulge. Oh, it's been a tough, it's been a tough week. Um, I've been badly treated this week. I will reward myself. Perhaps it's a few, a few too many drinks at the weekend. Uh, perhaps it's a few too many uh, moments trawling through the internet for stuff that you know is impure and unhelpful. There's a massive temptation for us to downplay our sin, to say it's, oh, it's only a small thing and it doesn't really matter. John would say, no, don't downplay your sin. It dishonors God. It is damaging for you. It will discredit the gospel. Don't downplay your sin. Confess it and uh, run to Christ for forgiveness. Don't downplay your sin. Second claim that um, that John challenges here in these verses is uh, in verse 8. He's effectively saying here, don't discount your sinful nature. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It seems that some of these false, false teachers were saying, human beings, look, we're not inherently bad. We don't really have a big problem with sin. We are basically good people. Um, and actually, that's, that's actually a really popular claim today. You start listening out for it. We're basically really good people. We're not inclined towards evil. We're, we're good people, fundamentally, who sometimes do naughty things. Again, the Bible's explanation is much more sophisticated and has much more explanatory power, I think. I think one of the easiest claims the Bible makes about the sinfulness of human beings is actually one of the easiest to believe. It really is. Just look, just, do you know anything about human history at all? Think of the catalog of conflict and war. 
often sparked by, by petty disagreements, selfish land grabs. Think of the small details of your own life. Think of the, the anger and the irritation and the bitterness and the resentment that you've experienced. Or if you're honest, you experience has, that has flown out of you. You see, the Bible's claim is that we are sinful people. We are inclined like that. We've used this illustration lots of times, like that dodgy shopping trolley. You know, the one with the bad wheel drifts off in the wrong direction as you're trying to walk down the aisle. That's what we're like. We drift off towards evil and selfishness and pride and envy. That's what we're like. Uh, I came across, uh, for those of you who know me well, uh, you will know that I'm not, I'm not a big fan of musicals. That's, that's, not, that's not my personal interest. But it turns out my sister is. My sister's a massive musical fan. Uh, and I was, we were talking a little bit about One John over the Christmas holidays, and she said, oh, do you know what? You should check out one song in West Side Story. Really? West Side Story? Okay. Turns out 1957... Uh, Leo Bernstein and uh, Stephen uh, Sondheim wrote the musical West Side Story, and it's a sort of a retelling of the Romeo and Juliet story, but instead of rival families, you've got rival gangs, you know, the Jets and the Sharks. And they're basically hoodlums. Um, but there's one song where, uh, that the Jets sing uh, when Officer Krupke uh, is about to arrest someone. Some are smiling here, and clearly know this song. Um, I'll just read the words to you, okay? Gee, Officer Krupke, you're very upset. Uh, we never had the love that every child ought to get. We ain't no delinquents. We're misunderstood. Deep inside us, there is good. It's not our fault. We just didn't get love from mom and dad. That's why we're behaving badly. Or they continue, Officer Krupke, you're really a square. This boy don't need a judge. He needs an analyst's care. He's, it's just his neurosis. That ought to be curbed. He's psychologically disturbed. I don't know how that fits the tune, but you get the idea. It's, it's, not, it's not his fault. It's not his fault. He has a sort of a neurolo- neurological problem, psychological problem. He just needs some help. They continue, Officer Krupke, you're really a slob. This boy doesn't need a doctor. Just a good, honest job. Society's played a terrible trick. Uh, and sociologically, he's sick. Society's problem, he's been dealt a rough hand. Uh, the, the, the kind of institutions are against him. It's not his fault. He's not bad. It's just all these things have conspired against him. Can't believe you're being so, uh, so harsh. So back in 1957, these two writers are poking fun at society's tendency to blame shift to refuse to take responsibility and to admit the deep problem that every single human being has in their heart. It's, it's a profound insight right in the middle of the songs. And we see it today. We see it today. It's not my fault. It's, 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 it's my temperament. It's my genes. It's my family's fault. It's my society's fault. It's not my fault. The Bible says, no, 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 no. Don't discount your sinful nature. You personally are inclined towards evil, selfishness, pride, and greed. John wants to say the problem with human nature is undeniable. We are inclined towards sin, selfishness, and evil. Don't downplay your sin. 
Don't discount discount your sinful nature. Third bogus claim that John challenges then, don't deny your sinful practice. Now, I think there's a subtle distinction between this one and the last one. Um, Verse 10, we read this. If we claim, again, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. It seems that these false teachers, what they're saying is, some of them are saying, um, well, yeah, I personally had a problem with sin in the past, but now I'm, I'm sorted. I don't sin anymore. I, I've reached the level of perfection. And that's been a teaching that's sort of plagued the church down through the centuries. Uh, perfectionism, uh, the idea that once you become a Christian, you, it is possible for you to become sinlessly perfect. And it actually pops up in surprising places uh, today. Um, for example, I came across this quote. Joyce Meyer, the Bible teacher, uh, she said, What I was taught to say growing up was that I was a poor, miserable sinner, but I'm not poor, I'm not miserable, I'm not a sinner. That is a lie from the pit of hell. If that is what, uh, what I was uh, and still were, then Jesus died in vain. I'm going to tell you something, folks. I didn't stop sinning until I finally got through my thick head that I wasn't a sinner anymore. Amen. No, not amen, Joy. Joyce. That is, that is not right. That is not right. Um, the one bit of Latin that I ever learned, I've, I've not, not done any Latin, but was the cool little phrase that Martin Luther spoke, simul justus et peccator, simultaneously saint and sinner. That's who we are. We are simultaneously saint and sinner. We will always, always have a problem with sin in our lives. Always. Until the Lord Jesus returns or we die. Whatever happens first. We will always have that problem. And if we deny that we sin, if we deny that we sin, we downplay it and deny it and discount it. If we do that, uh, as Joyce is heading that direction, uh, we make God out to be a liar. Uh, and his word is not in us. God has said in his word, sin will always be a problem. Well, that leads us to our last kind of hallmark of a Christian. If it's, sin is always going to be a problem, if it's always going to be a problem, uh, then what do we do about it? Well, here's the last hallmark. Um, confident, the genuine Christian is confident in Christ for forgiveness. The genuine Christian comprehends something of the holiness of God. The genuine Christian is conscious of the seriousness of their sin. And lastly, the genuine Christian is confident in Christ for forgiveness. This is sort of two elements to it. Um, The first thing is that they confess their sin. And then the second thing is they cling to Christ for atonement. First, they confess their sin. Verse 9. We skipped over verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Uh, some of us who have become Christians, we, we often go one of two directions. Uh, when you become a Christian, some of us will not really think about our own sin very much. 
uh, just get on with living our daily lives. Uh, we're not really convicted by our sin um, in an ongoing way. There are others who are acutely aware of their own faults and feelings and then continue to struggle with, with doubt or despair. And so you have one group who feels no conviction uh, of the seriousness of their sin and is not maturing and growing as a person in any way. And the other is feeling weighed down by their sin and has no relief at all. John is saying, here's the pattern for a Christian, a genuine Christian, is that you're very conscious of your sin. You confess it, cling to Christ for what he has done, and feel amazing comfort. That's, that's the pattern for a genuine, sincere Christian. If you, and it begins with this idea of correct confession, correct confession. And correct confession, number one, takes full responsibility. Unlike uh, the Jets, that jet song in West Side Story, we take full responsibility. It is not, you're not correctly confessing when you say, Father in heaven, forgive me, but I was really tired. Um, or she provoked me. Or whatever other mitigating factors you can think of at the time. Correct confession begins when blame shifting stops. When we say, it was wrong, and I did it, and I have no excuse, and I'm sorry. That's correct confession. I did it, it was wrong, I have no excuse, and I'm sorry. Correct confession takes full responsibility. But just glance again at verse 9. Correct confession is specific. It's the same in the Lord's Prayer. What if you noticed it? Uh, forgive us our debts. Not forgive us, just debt generally. Uh, and here it's specific. Forgive us our sins, not just sin generally. We don't just pray at the end of the day, Father, forgive me for my sin today. Amen. I think the New Testament challenges us to be specific. Forgive us. Confess your sins specifically. What does that look like? Well, it looks like a hundred different things for hundreds of different people. But it's saying something like, forgive me today for how I spoke harshly to my spouse. Forgive me today in that conversation where I stretched the truth or exaggerated my greatness. Forgive me today for my selfish use of my money. Forgive me today for where I had that opportunity to forgive someone and I didn't take it. Forgive me today for not praying. Forgive me today for that opportunity I had to share something about the Lord Jesus, but I wimped out because I was too afraid of what they would think of me rather than honoring you. True confession is specific, isn't it? Specific. But when we confess correctly, verse 9, when we confess correctly, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's a beautiful promise when you stop and think about it. An amazing promise. No matter what you've done, you can confess and experience forgiveness and cleansing. But 
It, it, the grammar is a bit awkward though when you stop and think about it. He is faithful and he's just. Ooh. I'm, I'd be looking for merciful there actually to be honest. But it's not there. Just. If he's just surely that means he punishes sin. After all he's God is light in him there is no darkness no none at all. Surely he's committed to justice. That's bad news for me, is it not? So how can God on the one or John on the one hand say that God is faithful and just and yet hold out the hope of forgiveness and cleansing? How does how do we how do we put those two things together? And that leads us to our last idea here. Uh, that we confess our sin, but also we cling to Christ for atonement. Uh, in John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, John goes on to, to answer that problem of verse 9 for us. Uh, and it's found in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. He's been talking about the Lord Jesus already in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. He is the historical man who was also God. That's who he was. Uh, and that he shed his blood so that we might be forgiven. <coughs> Dear children, verse, chapter 2, verse 1. Dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, the one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. The man, historical man, who is God, went to the cross to bear the full weight of the penalty that you and I deserve for all our failure, for all our sin. He, he fully paid the debt. It's been completely settled. And that is wonderful news because that means that God cannot demand a second payment. He cannot demand the penalty to be paid again. That would be unjust you get the logic? The price is paid. It would be wrong for God to demand a payment again from us because it's already been settled by the Lord Jesus. And that is why we can actually demand justice from God. And that is good news. In fact, that is the very case that Jesus is pleading before the Father for us. Notice how John describes the Lord Jesus. He speaks in our defense. He is our advocate. He is our lawyer. What sort of case could I have before God? None. But what Jesus, the case that Jesus is arguing is that I paid for him. I paid for her. So you must forgive them when they confess and ask for it. If you're here this morning and you are, you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian. Perhaps you feel that you've messed up too, too, once too often, once too badly in the past. Here is a wonderful promise for you. That there's nothing that you could have done that you cannot experience the full forgiveness of God for because of what Jesus has done. And if you are a Christian here this morning, and you comprehend something of the holiness of God, you're conscious of your sin, quickly confess it specifically, 
and cling to Christ, be wonderfully reassured. You are the real deal. You're the real deal. You're loved by God. You belong to him. You're fully forgiven and have a fantastic future ahead. Let me pray for us.